Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. I've entitled this, <clears throat> Becoming the Bride of Christ. And I'd like to read uh, from uh, John uh, chapter 2, verse 1 to 12, if you'll look that up. And in this passage, it's the wedding at Cana, which of course comes in John after in the beginning was the word echoing the lines of Genesis 1. It comes at the end of a seven-day period, a week which John seems to be depicting the week of recreation. And this wedding seems to echo the culminating point in the creation story in Genesis, but also the culminating point in the book of Revelation in which the wedding feast of the Lamb occurs. Let me read then John 12, or John 2, 1 to 12. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, And the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing twenty or thirty gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine, And did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this he went down to Capernaum, and he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. In this passage, Jesus' mother is given a prominent place. Uh, Her appearance is going to provide bookends to the gospel because she appears... Um, here and she appears at the scene of the crucifixion and it's not only Jesus' mother that is an important woman in John there are many important women women are given a prominent place in this book maybe more readily than men they come to faith they seem better positioned to confess the Messiah to serve the Messiah than than, than the men Uh, The longest conversation in John occurs with a woman, the woman at the well. 
the most profound and earliest confession is that of a woman, Martha, prior to her brother being raised. The example of humble service which Jesus is trying to teach his male disciples is first grasped and enacted by a woman, Mary, who anoints and dries Jesus' feet. The women, Mary and Martha, John notes, Jesus loved. So it is women who first come to the empty tomb and who first encounter the risen Jesus. It is a woman who is the first mass evangelist. The woman at the well goes in and her whole village comes out to meet Jesus. And his mother here in this passage, of course, is the one who prompts his first sign, his first uh, miracle, and prompts the beginnings of his public ministry. Some of his final words in the book of John you know, concern this woman and her care that he entrusts to the beloved disciple. What I'm going to argue is that this privileging of women takes on theological significance in John because of the crucial place, I think, they appear at crucial junctures in the gospel. At key points, they provide the model of belief, they provide the model of self-sacrificial service that we are to emulate. And so John seems to be narrating for us perhaps the theological point that the Apostle Paul will develop, and that is to be joined to Christ, to become the bride of Christ, will mean that we pass beyond stereotypical male-female roles in order to put on Christ, in order to be the bride of Christ. In John, this place of the bride is connected to joining a new family for salvation. That is, salvation is continually familial. Uh, to be the pride is, you know, uh, uh, to be joined to Christ is to enter this family-centered relationship. We're to abide in Christ. We're joined to the extended family of God. We become, you know, we see God as our father and his children as brothers and sisters. Abiding in agape love is a key development in the book of John. And this agape love is a familial love. It's a family love. And this is equated with putting on salvation. Men in John typically are hung up on law, on custom, on power. And ultimately it is of course men who killed Jesus due to these concerns. And so what I want to argue and illustrate is that men and John are not, uh, they're precisely not connected with the family, with abiding together in love. And this is connected to a failure of belief and it's connected to a failure of service on their part. The first example in the book is Nicodemus and, you know, who is a Pharisee, the leader of the Jews. And he has a conversation with Jesus that is set side by side in the gospel with the woman of Samaria. And clearly they both have problems. She has a thirst, a desire problem. The two are equated. But I think Nicodemus faces a more insurmountable obstacle. 
she understands that she has an alienation problem you know a gender problem a marriage a sex problem she's of questionable character and as a Samaritan woman maybe she has an ethnic and religious problem yet it is the very realization of her problematic status that gives her an advantage over Nicodemus Nicodemus seems unaware of any problem or that he has any problem and so Nicodemus and the woman at the well they're a kind of living example you remember Jesus parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector the woman is very much like the tax collector in that she acknowledges her sinfulness she acknowledges her failure but Nicodemus is the typical proud Pharisee Nicodemus, though, has a fear problem. He comes to Jesus at night. You know, think of this, the uh, contrast. She's meeting Jesus in broad daylight at high noon. He has a status problem, not like hers. His problem is that as a Pharisee and Jewish leader, he does not want to risk his status. His main problem is he seems he has an incapacity for thought, or at least for new thought. His inability to follow Jesus' argument means that he cannot reimagine his world. He's attached to the world that he presently occupies. And new birth then is inconceivable to him. And perhaps it is... Uh, well, welcome, everybody. <laughs> uh, maybe new birth is uh, a, a repulsive concept for Nicodemus, given all that he has achieved in his life. So Jesus and the woman begin with the discussion of sharing a drinking vessel which represents their intimate common ground. They are at a well, Jacob's well, a place where marriage has been initiated at key points in the Old Testament. Thirst or desire seems to represent the absence of life. And this woman has known an abundance of desire. She's been to the marriage well five times and her desire seems to be unquenchable. She easily follows Jesus' employment of metaphor, unlike Nicodemus. She knows natural water represents the water that may well up within a human being, quenching desire and giving life. Drinking from one cup means overcoming division. And this is the union that quenches desire through abiding together. And as we've said in John, abiding in Christ, abiding in the family of God is equated with salvation. Enmity between men and women is overcome in a community of equality among them. Ethnic divisions between Jews and Samaritans is bridged in a single community that in this conversation, Jesus says, worships God in spirit and truth. Switch to the scene with Nicodemus in the discussion of new birth. The metaphor escapes Nicodemus. 
in his mechanical black and white frame of reference, he says, oh, you mean that I must enter my mother's womb again? As is the case throughout John, the human problem is alienation. And this alienation, this problem is resolved through language that has to do with the family. It's spousal. Again and again, the one who is the bride or the one who has the bride is central in John 3 and in this conversation with the Samaritan woman. It's parental. He who abides with the Father and in the household of the Father achieves this new birth that's equated with agape love. It seems like the women of John are attuned to this familial love as salvation. It is precisely familial concerns, concerns with the family, that Jesus is discussing with the woman at the well. And that is the turning point at each point, each time a woman is introduced in the Gospel of John, that's the nature of the conversation. And so too, Jesus' mother is concerned. We're running out of wine here. And this leads to the inauguration of his public ministry. Two women, Mary and Martha, have lost their brother, Lazarus. And this is the occasion of some of Jesus' most in-depth teaching. And Mary and Martha, we are told, Jesus loved. The only ones, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, unless we count the beloved disciple. And this intimate little family, their home, their living room, their dining room, their garden tomb, is the familial hub for key teaching and key events. Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. You know, they're coming and Lazarus has died. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? He asks her. And this prompts Martha's good confession. One of the strongest confessions of faith in the gospel. I have faith that you are the anointed, the son of God who is coming into the cosmos. And then after Lazarus' resurrection, Mary, by anointing Jesus with this expensive nard and wiping his feet with her hair, Jesus says, leave her alone. She's preparing my body for death. This is one of the most intimate domestic scenes in all of the gospel. What Martha does for Jesus is set in the gospel. The next scene is the foot washing scene in which Jesus is attempting to wash the disciples' feet. Both scenes concern a discussion of sacrifice. The sacrifice of Christ, death, sacrificial service. The apostles don't get it. That one must pour out one's life, I think represented in the nard, represented in that she's preparing me. She understands that I'm going to give my life. Peter and the other apostles, they do not understand Jesus' washing of their feet. Mary is just demonstrating, uh, demonstrated the idea 
and demonstrated that it's connected to sacrificial death. Mary seems to understand that everything is to be poured out for love of Christ. Peter, he claims he'll lay down his life for Jesus, but we know what he means. It's the masculine sense of lay down your life. We're going to encounter him in the next scene, in the next uh, chapters, cutting off the ear of Malchus. He would lay down his life. He would go down in glory in a, a battle. So if we were to derive a masculine and feminine principle, maybe we shouldn't, but if we were, it might be that men are largely defined and constrained by what we might call the larger roles or their larger roles in society. We're told the occupation, the political identity of the apostles. Yet we know nothing of their families, their children, or next to nothing, of their spouses. The men in the gospel are identified as Pharisees, teachers of the law, rulers, fishermen, etc. The symbolic authority conveyed through the legal, the social nexus, is definitive of their masculinity. The status of being like Nicodemus and the Pharisees, keepers of the law, and religious authorities is one that keeps even this best of the Pharisees a secret. You know, he comes to Jesus at night. And there's this whole group of leaders in Israel who are secret followers of Jesus. Jesus is changing up this system of valuation. And of course, it's someone like Nicodemus who is most has the most to give up and so therefore is least likely to give it up. It is a, tho- a mode of thought in which being a servant or sacrificing for the other is almost inconceivable. And Peter, even, the leading apostle, he's not able to get the thing that Mary understands. Even at the end, this is the way the Gospel of John ends. It's a discussion with Peter. Peter, don't you understand yet that you have to lay down your life, not through the sword but through sacrificial service he's still teaching him something that Martha and Mary seem to have gotten early on now it's not that women are not also constrained by particular roles yet like the woman of Samaria like Mary and Martha like the woman at the tomb they move about very freely without fear They offer ready confessions of belief and humble service. Could it be that just as John deconstructs other binaries, you know, light, dark, life, death, that is the light is penetrating the darkness, life is defeating death, above, below, well, heaven has come to earth that he may be deconstructing that male-female duality. So to demonstrate Jesus overcomes alienation and distance between people and distance between God and people. Gender and marriage we know elsewhere in Scripture serves as primary in depicting salvation. Jesus pictures in Matthew and Luke The commencement of the Messianic age with a wedding feast. 
In Revelation, it's the wedding supper of the Lamb at which new creation is commenced. Paul in Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians connects new creation to the defeat of the original alienation between men and women. Paul describes male and female, along with slave and free, you know, in Galatians, Jew and Gentile, that that way of doing identity is suspended, it's overcome in Christ. Gender, like other cultural constructs, can be set aside among those who clothe themselves in Christ. And here the original image-bearing capacities, you know, that was the way that man was created as a plurality of persons, as male and female. It's only as a plurality that we bear the image of God. And so the image is restored. There's no longer antagonism. But there will be intersubjective, you know, inter, uh, a, a mutual subjective subjection to one another. And so the fall, you know, in Genesis, that's the first antagonism that arises between the man and woman. They were created in God's image and they've lost that image and the image is restored when that harmony, when that marriage supper of the Lamb is complete. And so in Christ, this oppositional duality is overcome. As Paul says, for as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God in 1 Corinthians. In Ephesians, the two are one. He's quoting Genesis. And this is a great mystery, but this is a unity. He says, I'm talking about Christ and the church. And so as John is breaking down other dualisms, he seems to be breaking down these stereotypical gender roles. Some of which are pagan. You know, this is proto-Gnosticism at work. Some of which are perversions of Jewish patriarchy. And he gives us a gendered, could we call it that? A gendered picture of salvation. Can we frame John's deployment of gender within the wedding at Cana, which exegetes through the centuries have seen as a kind of proleptic wedding feast of the Lamb? Is the wedding feast of the Lamb, you know, with its reconciled difference between man and woman, the bride, and the church. Isn't that John's point of departure in the gospel? Isn't that the theological frame for his understanding and portrayal of women in the gospel? Many have noted that the first seven days of the gospel capture the entire movement of salvation history. You know, in the beginning was the word. Here is creation recommenced, a recreation. And it follows then in the recreation, you know, you encounter John the Baptist, who is kind of the transition from the old to the new. You have the choosing of the various disciples, uh, representing, you know, the, the twelve are called. Many think this represents the gathering of the church and the gathering of the world. Um, so this wedding feast comes at, on the seventh day. Uh, the church is assembled. The work of the pre previous days is culminating 
uh, just as the seventh day is the culmination of creation or the seventh day is the culmination of the founding or the dedication of the temple. Or as in Hebrews, the seventh day is the entry into eternity. That is, every day is the seventh day. And this seventh day then culminates. You know, John has baptized Jesus. There's the ingathering of the world. And he has this discussion with his mother at this wedding. And what do they discuss? They discuss the hour. And of course we know the hour has to do with his death and his resurrection. They discuss his glory. Which describes you know, the miracles and ultimately the passion. And so the role of Mary, and he calls her woman in both places, in both Cana and at the cross. He says woman, and of course the word is Eve in Hebrew. And her, the conversation, she prompts Jesus to replace the water, maybe it's water that's used for purification normally, to provide new messianic wine. I mean, we could draw a very simple lesson and say, oh, here she's concerned about this domestic couple, and I'm sure that's, you know, they're embarrassed. I'm sure that's true. But the similarities between the scenes at the crucifixion and Cana, she's the mother, you know, she's the, in both, she's identified as the mother of Jesus. He calls her woman, Eve, and in both is the question of the hour. That is, Golgotha and Cana are tied together. They are the bookends in which we're reading John. And so maybe Mary is the representative of a new humankind. In that she says to the beloved disciple, here is your mother. And to the beloved, you know, and to, to his mother, here is your son. Woman, behold your son. Behold your mother. And it's recorded from that hour that the disciple took her into his household. Jesus' natural family in the synoptics had not been accorded any special place. And even John in the Cana wedding, you know, at the wedding at Cana, he seems to be rebuking his mother. Woman, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. However, at the culmination of the gospel, Jesus' mother is now the mother of the beloved disciple. And Jesus is now, by implication, his brother. As Raymond Brown puts it, a woman and a man stood at the cross, at the foot of the cross, as models for Jesus' own. His own family, his true family of disciples. In Paul's description, the bride of Christ, he pictures the feminine subject, the bride, identifies with and accepts in some way the incompleteness of the law. And remember, this is coming uh, in the, the section of Romans where Paul identifies the failed I, one in which, like the men in John, he seems to imagine this I this prototypical human seems to imagine life is to be found in the law, in religious authority, in cultural authority. 
And Paul describes the passage from alienation as a being joined to the body of Christ. He says, so my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God. And the transition to be joined, being joined to the body of Christ and bearing fruit, you know, the language is feminine, the language is becoming the bride of Christ. It renders the law inoperative. And the word here is Paul's katargatai. Uh, it's a, the idea the law is suspended. Some translations have the laws abolished. That's not it. That is, the law no longer applies in this instance. And so we've said that the men of John have law problems. And of course we all have law problems, but they seem to serve this role. They have status problems. And this is overcome by being joined to Christ who embodies the law. As A.T. Robertson describes Paul's illustration, he says the feminine stands for a void created by and in the law. In the, you know, it's the same thing as the king or a dictator. The one who institutes the law, whose very word is the law, his own relationship to the law is marked by the power of suspension. Maybe we have an illustration in a president who could pardon himself. I don't know. Uh, the place from which the law originates is marked by its disapplication. And one might conclude John is narrating, that is, he's telling the same theological point in his gospel. And maybe this is most poignantly illustrated in John 8, in which the woman taken into adultery is brought before Jesus. And you know what Jesus does there? He begins to write in the dirt. And of course, the language is straight out of Exodus 32. It's the same language described, uh, describing God's use of his finger to write the Decalogue. The implication seems to be that the one who embodies the law frees an adulteress from the condemnation of those who would deploy the law against her. She's enjoined to sin no more and she stands free of condemnation while her accusers depart under the weight of the law one by one. He who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And of course they all leave. Her encounter with Jesus has literally suspended the law It's literally saved her life. And so all who are joined to Christ as his bride are freed from the weight of the law, from the alienation, through his love which embodies and surpasses the law. Abiding in the body, the church, being joined together in agape love, joining a new family, being born again, having our lives centered in a new family, a new household, a new sort of body. This is our salvation. 
Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.